On Sunday nights, we continue our series entitled Training the Twelve. And uh, for those of you who may not have been here for a previous Training the Twelve lesson, the, the whole idea is Steve and I are working together to look at the principles, the practices, the lessons that Jesus taught to his twelve apostles while he was in ministry and as he walked through this world. All the lessons, all of the things that he wanted them to learn uh, are what we've been looking at as seeking to take the things which don't didn't apply just directly to them, but also had lessons and implications for us. So we have... Uh, uh, the last time I was up here, we finished a series on cross lessons, and we've been through uh, uh, picking up your cross, denying yourself, and following me. And then last Sunday night, Mike Ward spoke, and uh, and then we're back. Uh, this is a one-hit wonder. We're going to talk about uh, Judas, who is, of course, infamous among the apostles for what he did. But I think there are some lessons that we can learn, and... Uh, the first is, uh, when you have a child, uh, there are an unending, infinite number of names that you can pick. Um, and in the same way, there are also a set list. It's unwritten, but basically everyone observes the list of names that you cannot name your baby. Uh, Adolf is one of those names. Jezebel would be one of those names. I'm guessing Judas is one of those names. I don't think it's very popular among the, the baby name books. Just a, just a hunch. Uh, why is that? Because, of course, Judas tarnished his name. The same is true for all of the names that, you, you know, that are not on the unspoken list. You know? uh, we, when we went through that, we would go through, I would like a certain name. And Christy would say, oh, no, we can't pick that name. I, I knew somebody with that name, and I just can't do it. Here's the thing. You ever wonder if your name is in on anybody else's list? Now, Judas is an interesting fellow uh, for a number of reasons. But the first lesson that we, of course, learn is that he, uh, the, the choices that he made in his life affected uh, how we view him t through history, not just today, but, but all the way since that time, uh, Judas has been an infamous character. So tonight we're going to look very quickly at uh, who he was, what he did, and maybe ask some tough questions surrounding this character. Some background information. Uh, you probably know just about as much as I did about a week ago about Judas. Um, but I had the advantage of knowing I had to preach about it, so I studied it, and uh, here's some things to share with you. First is, his name, for as infamous as it is, is actually a good name. The meaning of it is actually praise. Yeah, it's a pretty good name. Um, but it was tarnished. His last name, Iscariot, which was this was common among uh, names at the time, had to do with where he was from uh, more than connecting him to a lineage. And so it literally means from Kerioth. And this tells us that he was the only apostle not from Galilee. Uh, he was from Kerioth, which was a town in southern Judah. 
And so he was kind of an oddball just by that fact alone. His dad's name was Simon, not the Simon that we know. But John 671 tells us that he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. So we can, by reasonable deduction, assume Simon was also from Kerioth, who was one of the twelve who was later to betray him. Interesting that the story of Judas uh, is eerily similar to an Old Testament story of a character named Ahithophel and David. And uh, I'm not going to go through all that tonight because that's not the point. But when you look at 2 Samuel 15, which is where that story, David had this uh, commander. And, of course, this is the split kingdom. And Ahithophel went over to uh, the other kings uh, to serve for him. He betrayed him. So David refers to this in Psalm chapter 41, verse 9. And then that psalm is quoted in John 13, speaking of Judas. So there is this idea, at least in some form or fashion, that there was always going to be a betrayer. Scripture doesn't name him specifically uh, in foreshadowing him, but we do know at least that there was, you know, if, if the suffering Savior had to suffer, then it was someone that was going to lead him to that suffering. Back to the Old Testament, when we look at Judas the Apostle, anytime you look at uh, the gospel accounts, where was Judas in that list? This is a Sunday night crowd. Where was Judas in that list? Last, right? <clears throat> it's kind of how you um, think about it. Uh, almost as an asterisk, you know, to, oh, and by the way, he was there too. It's interesting to me that if you think about it, Jesus, I would, Judas, um, and I, there was a quote I found that Judas heard all of Christ's sermons. You know, he saw the miracles. He heard the lessons. He, he, um, and we'll look at later. I think he, he was pretty close to Jesus among the twelve. He had to have some amount of trustability and likability. Um, we don't see him that way, of course. But on that side of it, what was it that caused Judas to hear the Sermon on the Mount, to see the miracles that he did, to watch the healings, to, to go through all of that, and still uh, betray him. His main job was the treasurer. Uh, turn to John chapter 12, verses 4 through 6. John 12, 4 through 6. There John writes, But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, was later to betray him, objected, <clears throat> Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Now, he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. <clears throat> My question is, which is not in John 12, but why did they appoint him to be the treasurer? It was obvious that John knew this. I don't know if he's writing after the fact, looking backward and saying, okay, that guy was a thief. Betrayed Jesus for this money. Obviously he was a thief the whole time. Or was he just good at fooling some and not others? I mean I think about our treasurers. Okay, David Heller uh, served for many years. Did a wonderful job. Greg Sandlin serves in that capacity now. Both men upstanding. 
honest men of character, uh, people that you trust. They're handling large sums of money. They have to be able to be very trustworthy. When, when along the way did Jesus appoint or did the other apostles decide that Judas would be the guy to hold on to the money? Scripture doesn't say. We're not told. <clears throat> um, but this tells us at some point along the way, he was perceived to be trustable and honest. Now, whether they realized that he wasn't that during his apostleship or after, uh, we are left to judge. We don't know. But at one time, for the, uh, the public ministry, he was a treasure. He was called by Jesus, uh, just like everyone else. Um, Luke chapter 6, <clears throat> verse 12. And following, one of, the, one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. And when morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he designated apostles. And it goes to the entire list. And of course, verse 16, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Now, I thought this was interesting. I included verse 12 because of this. Luke tells us that Jesus spent all night praying to God. And then he went and selected these apostles. Now, if Jesus, being omniscient, knows everything that must happen and that will happen, I bet he had some difficulty in calling Judas. Whether or not he knew that that was with him and in him at that moment when he called him that he was a wicked guy, or whether he was a good guy who later turned wicked, we don't know. But... For sure, Judas had to be a deep, deep subject of Jesus' prayer life. And indeed, I think as you go through his public ministry, you see many times when Jesus warns about greed and loving money. And I, I never saw it until now, but I think in a lot of ways, you know, he's, he's preaching this message. He's talking to the apostles, and he's staring pretty hard at Judas because he knows what's coming. He was important. Mark chapter 14 tells us that um, he sat beside, next to Jesus, close enough where he could dip into the bread bowl with him. Uh, we've talked about this before, but you know, seating arrangements are sort of a big deal uh, in their culture and in ours. So you're a prominent person, you get to sit closer to the more prominent figure. At the Last Supper, Jesus, uh, Judas was sitting very close to Jesus. John chapter 13 records, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. So dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. Now, I didn't list the last two there, but I'm just trying to give you this idea. Try to break through some of your preconceived notions about who G Judas was and perhaps who they saw him as. Let's talk about the betrayal. That's probably the most well-known uh, for what he did. And um, we know, first of all, he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Matthew records, early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death. They bound him, led him away, handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that, he was, that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and to the elders. I've sinned, he said, for I betrayed innocent 
blood. What is that to us? They replied, that's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest picked up the coins and said, it's against the law to put this into the treasury since it's blood money. Ironically, since they gave him the blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. And that is why it's been called field of blood to this day. And then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 silver coins, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field, as the Lord commanded me. Hard to think that any life could be betrayed for so little a price. And certainly, as Judas understood, innocent life. We see that happening today. Few news stories that could remind us of that, but what was it that got into Judas' heart? Where on somehow on the scales of his heart, he had thirty pieces of silver and loyalty to the, the, the rabbi, the teacher whom he loved, and it fell down on the on the silver. It's hard for us to imagine such a thing. Number two. Filled with remorse, he later hanged himself. Acts chapter 1, verses 16 and following. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in this ministry. And then Luke adds this parenthetical. With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. There's some argument there about, you know, uh, how did that happen with, you know, Matthew says the 30 silver coins went, uh, he threw them back, and they used that money to buy a field. And Luke says that with the money he got, he bought a field himself. Seems like he's saying himself, where he fell headlong. And one commentator read, kind of resolved those two, that this, you know, the, the teachers bought the field. It was a place used to bury the foreigners. And then at some point when, Jesus, or when Judas was filled with remorse, uh, that field was where he used to, to hang himself. And apparently he... I mean, to be too crude here, but the body hung for a while, probably rotted and, and fell apart, burst open. So uh, that's what we, we know, uh, part two. Part three is that in Scripture he's called the son of perdition. A perdition meaning destruction, damnation. Uh, one, one translation says waste. That's, that's not a good name to be left with on the the record book of history. Destruction, damnation, or waste. John chapter 17, verse 12, John writes this, While I was with them, I protected them. I'm sorry, this is Jesus praying. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe. By that name you gave me, none has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that Scripture would be fulfilled. 
Mark chapter 14, verse 21, Jesus said, clearly referring to Judas, but does not say his name. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. When Jesus says of you, it would have been better for you never to have been born, you're getting pretty serious. So he was the son of perdition, which has a deeper meaning. So the question comes up, or several questions come up concerning Judas. We know the facts, but the difficult questions come down to theology, I think. Come down to how we understand how God works and how our free will interacts with his uh, omnipotence, his all-powerfulness. When I was in college at Oklahoma Christian, my roommate, Craig, had a, had a younger brother. He was younger than Craig, and Craig was um, at, I'm a roommate at OC, and his younger brother was in a car wreck. He was a freshman, I think, at Harding University. It was a very tragic story. I mean, he, he basically came up to a stop sign, uh, but he didn't see the stop sign. There was a, a tree that had grown out. The branches got long. Nobody had trimmed them back. It was covering up the sign, so he ran it unintentionally. It was sideswiped. Had a horrific head injury. And his life is never the same. So my roommate, Craig, was gone for most of that year. I didn't have a roommate. One night, after we were talking about the whole situation with Craig... And we started talking about, did God know this was going to happen? Is God in charge? If he's in charge, why did he let it happen? Did he know it was going to happen and not care? Or was he surprised? Because neither of those two answers are real satisfactory. Perhaps you've been there. I don't know why I happen to be holding a spoon in the dorm room, but I was probably eating something. I know, surprise. And we started talking about this, and so we started getting into this really deep theological, philosophical discussion about free will and God. And someone asked me, the resident Bible major among engineers, does God know if you're going to hold on to that spoon or drop it? Well, I think he knows. So, is it possible that you could do anything truly in your own free will? Could you drop that spoon and God not see it coming? No. Then do we really have free will? Is it possible 
for me to do anything that God doesn't know, understand, or foresee happening. For some of you, that's not, you think this is a weird lesson. Some of you have been there when the spoon dropped. And you're forced to wrestle with God. And he doesn't answer back. Did you know? This is the difficulty we get into with Judas. When we ask the question of all the difficult questions, we come into this the big theological split. Sorry, you're going to do inside baseball here. On one side, there are those who say, you have no free will. It's impossible. God knows everything, foreordains everything, preordains everything. It is impossible. We are merely players in a game that has already been planned out. Those are called Calvinists, by the way. Those who believe that... Uh, There are only an elect few going to heaven. And there is nothing, nothing that they can do to change that fact. On the other end are those who are called Armenians. Armenians, closer to the free will side. That we have free will, that we make our own choices, and uh, we have consequences as a result of these choices that we make. And these two theological spectrums argue with one another. And certainly concerning Judas. So let's ask some difficult questions. I'm going to try to answer them. and I'll probably come up with more questions than answers, but I'm going to do my best. I just want you to, I say all that to say, this is difficult stuff that we're trying to address in about ten minutes. But it's worth thinking about. And you're certainly going to have to think about it at some point in your life. Number one, did Jesus know that he, Judas, would betray him? I think the answer is yes. Otherwise, Jesus could not have been omniscient, um, would not have been all-knowing. And indeed, going through the warnings and looking at what he said, John chapter 2, verse 24 says, But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He understood uh, whether it was Simon, whether I mean, Simon Peter, um, whether it was James and John. He knew their hearts. He knew them, and I believe he knew Judas. Uh, John chapter six, verse sixty-four. Yet there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe, and who would betray him. So he knew. All right. Not too bad there. Pretty easy. So that leads us to the next logical question in my mind is, why did Jesus call him? Why did Jesus call him if he knew? My answer to that is, it was the will of God. It was the will of God 
we can turn to Isaiah chapter 53. In fact, I would suggest it. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10 says, It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Peter said it this way in Acts chapter 2, New Testament, Acts 2, 23. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Uh, Isaiah is clear. Peter's clear that the crucifixion, the suffering of the, of the uh, servant had to happen. There had to be one through whom betrayal came, over which he was handed, uh, through his betrayal was handed over. It was the will of God. And, and indeed, there were many times when Jesus struggled, and hear me carefully on this, Jesus struggled with the will of God. Not all the time, but certainly concerning the crucifixion, certainly concerning uh, his betrayal. I mean, it, put yourself in that situation. You being human, if you knew what was, what would, was to come at Golgotha, would you not struggle with that? I surely would. So he did. Uh, and, and he understood he knew who Judas was, and he called him yet the same. Now, I think he called Judas the best, very poor analogy that I can use is as a parent. There are times when I, I know what's going to happen, and I warn against it happening, but I still know it's going to happen. Um, Grace loves roller skating. So she, she and Tyler both have roller skates, and they'll go roller skating around, and they put on their roller skates. Well, she always do that, she put her skates on in our driveway, and then there's a pretty good angle to the bottom of the driveway where the sidewalk is. And I'll tell her, Grace, put on your skates at the bottom of the driveway. Because when you do it here, and then I have to explain gravity and laws of physics and all that, and she kind of tunes out, and she doesn't listen. I know what's going to happen. I try to prevent it from happening, but it still happens. Again, it is not a perfect analogy, so don't take it too far. But I think Jesus understood who Judas was when he called him and why he had to call him. Why did Judas betray Jesus? And my answer to this is, and that's why I gave you a lot of space to write there, it's conjecture at best. Some people say, well, he was a zealot, and so he wanted Jesus to be a messianic king. So he followed Jesus because he thought this guy, could, this guy could do it. And when he saw that he wasn't going to do it, when he says things like, my kingdom is not of this world, Judas says, I'm going I'm to put you in a corner where you have to you know, call 10,000 angels. Well, I don't know, but that's one theory. Two is, he did it for the money. That's probably you know, what we 
presume the most. A couple of problems with that. One is 30 pieces of silver, as we already said, is not that much money. Number two, uh, he had access to the money bag already. So he could have found easier ways to get that money if he desired it. Now, money may have been the key motivator, uh, but again, we don't know. Some have said, number three, he was God's pawn. God knew this had to happen, so God had to, you know, as you take a pawn in a chess game and you, you willingly move that pawn to where it needs to be for the plan to happen, yet you know you will lose that pawn, you understand that that's a reasonable sacrifice. Um, Matthew 27, 4 says, uh, I have sinned, Judah said, I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to you? They replied, that's your responsibility. As God foreknew. The question is, how deeply did he foreknow? Did he understand that when he created Judas, he created him for that purpose, to betray the Messiah, to betray innocent blood to Golgotha? Some people say yes. Some people say, eh, I think he, he became twisted along the way. Some say he was Satan's pawn. Other side of the chessboard now. I'm really exciting all the nerds in here. They are just, yeah, chess illustrations. We love it. Um, John chapter 13. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Okay? He's prompting him, he's prodding him, he's pushing him, you know. And it seems like Satan kind of has that ability, but was he limited to that? Verse 27 says, as Judas, soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered him. Now, was that because he forced his way in or because Judas let him in? I think, in my understanding, Judas let him in. He let him have control. And Jesus says, what you are about to do, do quickly. So, uh, those are my multiple possible reasons, but we really don't know, and, and Scripture doesn't tell us. Did Judas ever have a choice? Was it predestined for him to uh, betray Jesus, or um, was it something that we... Was, would it be possible, another way of saying it, is could we be talking about someone else betraying Jesus tonight? I think he had a choice. I'm far enough to the Armenian scale, <laughs> my theology, to say I think he always had a choice. Otherwise, why would Jesus have warned him so often? Why would he have pleaded uh, in prayer over him? So, but I think once he did choose what he chose, when, it, when Satan entered his heart, then uh, the consequences of that were set. There was, you know, once you choose this way... Uh, you can't go back. Number five, uh, was he really a disciple? This is where the, those who are believe the, the sort of toward the Calvinist end is that you know, if someone you, they will say a person who falls was never really a Christian to begin with. Okay, you you and I all know people who went in those waters or waters somewhere, they confessed Jesus as Lord and they walked away. 
They, they don't come to church. They're not part of having a desire. They don't live like it. Jesus is not Lord in their life. Uh, my way of thinking, it's a choice to become a Christian. It's a choice to not become a Christian. You can, you can lose that salvation. You can't have it taken away from you, but you can give it up. Some people say, uh-uh, no, that's not the way it works. You, you see, if you fell from, from grace, you were never a Christian to begin with. A, a true Christian can never fall, is the argument that they would make. So, Jesus, or Judas gives them some trouble. Was he ever really a disciple? And they have to say, no, he wasn't. Um, I think he was really a disciple, but he chose, he fell. He chose to betray Jesus. Could his story have ended differently? Yes, it could have. Jesus tried to persuade persuade him. He tried uh, in multiple ways to convey to him how much he loved him, you know, to not do it. And then once he did it, he said, all right, make this quick. All right. I hope I handled those difficult questions as well as one can handle them in ten minutes and answered all your theological questions about spoons. What are the lessons for us? I mean, regardless of where you see Judas and how that fits into your theology, in particular of predestination and free will and all of that, what, uh, what lessons can we draw? This has been our goal with these lessons, not just to study it and think, oh, that's interesting, and answer questions nobody's asking, but to, uh, to come away saying, okay, this applies here. All right, number one, you can be close to Jesus without knowing Jesus. Uh, Fewer were closer than the apostles, and there was Judas right there. Heard the lessons, saw, uh, heard the stories, saw the miracles, everything. Didn't know Jesus. Didn't know him. Didn't want to know him as Lord. Wasn't his friend in the sense that Jesus called them friends. There's a lesson in that for us. It's not enough just to be close to Jesus. You've got to know Jesus. You've got to know him as Lord. Number two, sin always grows to a point of destruction. Um, and I probably should have put, you know, sin unchecked, grows to a point of destruction. If you've got sin in your life, that sin, if you don't deal with it, if you don't let the Spirit deal with it, it will grow to a point of ultimate destruction. That's what James says. Um, and it did in Judas's life, and it will in our life as well. Number three, Judas, Jesus didn't want Judas to perish. I, I believe that with all my heart. That knowing the character of Jesus and knowing his love of men and their souls it wasn't just what about what would happen to Judas here on earth. It was in eternity where Jesus cared about Judas and all men equally. Um, he's, this is why he sought repentance and still does. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. He is patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I've said it before, but you know, I know 
times when we say, Lord, come quickly. Lord Jesus, come quickly. The reason he doesn't is because he still loves a lot of unsaved people out there. A whole world of souls is going to hell. And he's trying to put that off as long as possible. That's his heart. He doesn't want anyone to perish. And he didn't want Judas to either. Number four. We have all done what Judas did. That is, we betrayed him at some point. I've told some stories about We don't have time. I won't tell that story. We've all done what Judas did. Betrayed him. We can all do what Judas didn't, and that is to repent. There's still time. Uh, the, the story of Judas is a sad one. It didn't have to end that way. But it did end that way. And that breaks our hearts, and it should break... I mean, it breaks God's heart, and it should break ours. But if you're in the you tonight, uh, you can learn from Judas's life and where you've betrayed him, where you've turned your eye away from him, where you've refused to submit to his lordship, where you've returned, refused to turn your heart or part of your heart over to him. He waits, he waits, and he hopes you'll repent. These are the lessons of Judas, and I, I hope they've been helpful to you in some way tonight. If you have a need, you want to put Christ on as Lord, or if you'd like to repent and, un, and let Jesus undo all the things which you have so horribly done, uh, please come as together we stand and sing.